Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Supply chain, two words that describe the perpetually in motion and usually invisible pathways by which goods get from where they are made, mined, or grown to where they are going, the consumer and companies who have paid for them. Until about two years ago, only specialists in the fields of trade, manufacturing, transportation, and logistics ever used this term. Now, thanks to events we're all too familiar with, supply chain is on everyone's lips. Welcome to OECD Podcasts. I'm Christopher Mooney, and today my guest is Marion Jansen. Marion is the director of the Trade and Agriculture Directorate of the OECD and one of the world's top experts on policy reform in the fields of food, agriculture, fisheries, and international trade. Hello, Marion. Hi, Chris. Okay, so first, the COVID-19 pandemic hit and suddenly medical supplies like face masks were impossible to find in certain countries. Then one of the world's biggest ships got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal, blocking traffic. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. What have we learned from all of this? How prepared were governments? Well, we have learned that we depend a lot on international trade and uh, the shocks you described, Chris, they are very different in nature and uh, supply chains have reacted in different ways to them and our economies have managed to deal with them in different ways. In the COVID-19 pandemic, what happened is that across the globe, everybody suddenly started to want to buy the same thing. Uh, masks, for instance, that's a huge increase in demand for one particular good. So it's not surprising, really, that you ran into bottlenecks in a situation like this. And frankly speaking, supply chains held up very well in that pandemic. If we hadn't had open markets in that period, we wouldn't have been receiving masks, disinfectants, testing kits, and everything you would need in a hospital to deal with COVID-19 that rapidly. Same thing for vaccines. There wouldn't have been available so rapidly. Now, we may have experienced shortages, but supply chains held up very well. We run um, in some more problems in the second half of the of the crisis when the economy started to recover. Economies opened up at different places at different times. And then we realized that our supply chains were built around a just-in-time delivery. Everything was perfectly timed around a minute. And then when suddenly something changes in that chain, there we realized that adjustments were hard. And then on top of that, a ship gets blocked in the Suez Canal. That's another big shock. So um, then we realized that the just-in-time is maybe not ideal in a period with the kind of disruptions that you have been describing and expect business to be adjusting to this. Now, the war is a very different story, but I'm happy to expand on that if you mm. wish so, Chris. Okay. So can all these risks be anticipated? And what sort of predictive analytics are available to, to policymakers? I think you can predict a lot of risks and you can prepare for them. And it is, a, it is a choice to prepare for them or not. So do you want to pay for having a stock of masks always ready somewhere and for also renewing that stock of masks before in order for it to be in the shape you need it if there is a crisis? Or do you consider that the risks of something serious to happen are so low that you do not need that stock? And I think there we may now assess things a bit differently than we did before the global pandemic. And um, the invasion of Russia in Ukraine has definitely changed our assessment of the risks of major geopolitical crisis. So are there things that governments can't do 
Well, there are different views on this. I think at the OECD, we would say governments should not run supply chains. Mm -hmm. And uh, the private sector has definitely methods, mechanisms to preempt risks, to assess risks and to manage them. The private sector has over time adjusted the way they give to certain risks. Definitely after the great financial crisis, 2008, 2010, they started to change their way of doing business. And the private sector is quite good in this. So if anything, governments can learn from the private sector. And by the way, when we at the OECD developed our OECD keys to resilient supply chains for policymakers, we worked with business mm -hmm. to think the supply chain through and to assess what could business do, what can, if at all, the public sector do and how, and that's very important, can they work together. In a moment of crisis, public-private collaboration is key. And that's the kind of thing you can prepare for by building trust, having platforms, networks ready that can react and act when and if the crisis happens. So what were those keys that uh, the OECD discussed and put together? Yeah, we try to put something together that is simple to use and gives policymakers a way of thinking through the problem because we believe that in every country, the choices that policymakers will make will be different. Uh, so we describe what you have to do to anticipate risk. And they are notably in that part, you should consider deciding where do you want to intervene as a government? What do you, for instance, consider to be a critical supply chain? Are masks critical? Are vaccines critical? Is energy critical? Are shoes critical? Trousers critical? And it's only in a certain part of the economy you may want to even consider intervening. And then you also have to ask yourself, in what part of that economy, where should we leave the role to the private sector or where should the public sector come in? So it's anticipating risk. Then you can prepare your economy in a way domestically to minimize exposure. So you can, for instance, do this by having um, infrastructures in place that are strong enough to hold up with different types of crisis. You can have what was very important in the pandemic to have digital systems in place that allow you to work with less people than you had already originally anticipated. There are things you may want to do with your partners. So you anticipate risks, you minimize exposure at home, but then there are things in an open economy that you want to discuss with other partners. Very important, for instance, is how do you deal with regulations at the border in times of crisis? Are you willing to become a bit more flexible, a bit more agile? In order to do that, you have to have built a trusted relationship with your partner countries. Simple example, if I have a vaccine producing company in my country, the company, uh, when it produces and a pandemic happens, it, it is interested in producing as much as possible and selling. The company doesn't necessarily care in which country it sells. Well, a policymaker represents an electorate, represents voters of his or her country. So the policymaker cares about where the vaccines are sold. That's a situation where the policymaker doesn't necessarily have the same view as the company. And these are the kind of things you have to prepare for together. You do not want to do the business of the company as a policymaker, but you want to prepare for a crisis situation so that you together are able to act in the best way. Okay. And I think the fourth point was open markets. What exactly does the OECD mean by 
Um, that was the third point. So anticipate risk, minimize exposure, open build markets trust and, and, and build trust markets. for public-private uh, relationships. Um, in open markets, we uh, understand different aspects of this. So one aspect is that you ideally keep your markets open. One thing that is very bad in terms of shocks to the economy is if different governments start to close their markets, because then you add another shock on top right. of a shock yep. you're going through panics and people hoarding, etc. Exactly. Then you get less access to goods, prices go up, and that's a very natural reaction to do this, but it is a terrible thing to do in terms of crisis. The other example I mentioned is the one of regulatory collaboration. That's also something that has been very important during the pandemic to be sure that you continue to get things through the border, even through operations are taking place in an unusual way. Ideally, also, now the situation of geopolitical risks, you want to consider building up close and trusted relationship with enough partners outside so that you can, if something goes wrong with one partner, move towards other partners. So building up strong trade relationships, for instance, through trade agreements, is another important thing to do. If we could talk about the war, what are some of the most significant bottlenecks, supply chain bottlenecks that have been occurring because of the situation in, in Ukraine? Now, I think it's uh, fair to say that one of the biggest impacts of the situation in Ukraine is the impact occurring through the rise in energy prices. And that's the case because uh, Russia is such an important provider of energy that Russia being at war has affected the availability of energy in global markets or a number of OECD members do not buy from Russia anymore. So prices for energy have gone up and that has trickled down effects on many economies and on different parts parts of the economy. So one thing that we uh, can expect is that uh, those sectors that are very energy intensive will be harder affected by this. I'm thinking notably of the car industry. This is not what I would call a supply chain effect. When you think of a supply chain effect related to the war, then I would think of the logistics being interrupted in mm -hmm. the Black Sea region. The Black Sea region is very important for the exports of grains from Ukraine and Russia to, in particular, Northern Africa and the Middle East. And because of the war situation, transport and logistics in the Black Sea have been interrupted until the Black Sea Grain Initiative was concluded. And um, so no logistics, no ships. That means you don't get grain out of Ukraine to the typical buyers. And if there's one thing that we learned in that crisis, it's that you cannot easily and rapidly build alternative infrastructure if it doesn't exist. So it was not possible uh, within a short notice to build alternative land transport routes that would allow the Ukraine to transport the same amount of grains out of the country. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has therefore been a very important initiative to ease global markets for cereals, in particular for grains. The European solidarity lanes have also been very important, but the Black Sea Initiative has made it possible for grain to leave the Ukraine through the traditional logistic channels. Right. Because together, Russia and Ukraine, they only account for around 3% of global GDP and less than 2% of the world's trade flows. So why has the war had such a big impact? Is it entirely cost of energy from Russia and access to the Black Sea? 
I think it would be fair to say that it's the combination of these two things that makes uh, this an important impact and add to this the fact that uh, this war happened after another big crisis, as we just discussed, the COVID-19 pandemic. I think maybe also the timing made markets also particularly nervous. So what we have unfortunately seen in all these markets, in particular grain markets and uh, now also in fertilizer markets, is a level of nervousness in markets and overshooting that leads to bigger price fluctuations than are necessary when you take into account the size of Russia and Ukraine in this particular case. For instance, Ukraine produces 4 to 5% of global wheat. It's responsible for 10 to 12 percent of global exports. And when that number hit the market, many players became very nervous and prices showed up. Also, Russia started to restrain its own exports of wheat. There was no need for that. They could have continued to export it. So that added, probably for a geostrategic reason, to the pressure on markets. We have seen prices going up by 60 percent just after the invasion of Russia and Ukraine. They are back now to close to where they were before the war. So the markets clearly overreacted. If you were to ask me again, what did we learn from this mm-hmm. sequence of crises? It's that uncertainty is a very costly thing for business and in particular for international markets. And unfortunately, we have gone through a large amount of uncertainty in past years. I was wondering if we just talked briefly about the global supply of raw materials that are critical for clean tech and uh, the transition towards renewable energy, things like lithium and borates and cobalt. Global imports and exports of these have become increasingly concentrated among countries over the last decade. Are there mechanisms in place or are there discussions underway to put mechanisms in place to create more agile supply chains for these critical raw materials? Um, It is definitely possible to increase the diversity of producers and suppliers of these type of materials. And that would then also bring more tranquility into markets. It's not something you do from one day to the other. But what we are most actively looking into is not necessarily an active way of changing who produces, who buys, but uh, looking for an active way in increasing transparency in those markets. We have learned from agricultural markets that having international transparency mechanisms is very useful in times of crisis. After the great financial crisis, something was created that we call AMIS, the Agricultural Market Information System. On that system, you can see how the harvest is in which country, how many stocks are available for uh, four important important commodities, including wheat and rice. You know what the price is. You know who is buying what and who is selling what, who is importing and who is exporting. And in times of crisis, when people become nervous, it's very useful to be able to say, hey, look at the data. There are actually enough stocks around or harvests have been good in that part of the world, even if there is a bad harvest in the other part of the world. That is very useful to keep markets calm and to avoid that governments get into panic and start restricting exports, which is, as I already said, a very negative reaction for markets. So there are very active discussions to set up a similar system for raw materials to increase transparency and therefore add to better and stronger information on the availability of raw materials in international markets. Well, thank you, Marion. You supplied us with a lot of things to think about. It was great having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. To learn more about the Trade and Agriculture Directorate, go to www.oecd.org trade. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts and SoundCloud.com/OECD.